to remember the visualization. Not only the merit field in front, but yourself surrounded by all sentient beings. So let's cultivate our motivation and remember that sentient beings are not our enemies. Sentient beings are not out to get us. And when we have problems, the principal cause is our previous karma. The actions we've done, previous lives, or this life, that are now ripening in the experience of displeasure or suffering that we have. And if sentient beings are involved, it's because they are only the cooperative condition. If we hadn't created the karma, our mind would not be upset about this particular thing. So in that way, let go of any animosity towards others, any fear of them. Any suspicion. And instead, work on creating realistic perspectives, realistic ways of looking at situations and at other sentient beings. So rather than expect everybody to be perfect and to do what we want when we want them to do it. Let's recall that they're overwhelmed by afflictions. They're pushed by their own karma. And so have compassion for them because even though they want happiness, 
just like us, they create the cause for misery. And in that way, let compassion and bodhicitta arise in your mind. Okay, so we've been on the uh, chapter, chapter 8 on meditation. So you'll notice, yeah, chapter 8 out of 10 chapters is the 8th chapter. The chapter on meditation is the 8th chapter. It's not the first chapter. Yeah, and so many people come to Buddhism thinking Buddhism is only about meditation. Yeah. And that all we need is meditation. And without really understanding the different kinds of meditation or knowing how to, receiving instructions on how to meditate, people jump in and, of course, they, they're doing their best. But... Uh, you know, if you don't have the background, you're not going to get the results that having the background, you know, gives us. So this is why it's so important to really understand the whole Buddhist picture and the Buddhist worldview. And when they, uh, you know, when the Buddha spoke about learning the Dharma, he talked about first, they said hearing, because at that time, uh, you know, they didn't have uh, video machines and stuff like that. So you heard, it applies also to studying, to reading, to learning the Dharma, then thinking about it. So that could be like the kind of debate the Tibetans do and some of the Indians did before them. It could be discussion with our Dharma friends and then meditation, where you really focus the mind on the conclusions that you've come to after learning and thinking about or reflecting on the Dharma. So meditation is not just about emptying the mind of all thoughts. Yeah, it's quite important because this seems to be uh, one of the prominent ideas it started out, you know, I mean, I remember decades ago, yes, meditation, just get rid of all your thoughts. And that wrong thought hasn't, uh, you know, gone down the dump yet, despite all the years of, you know, Buddhism being taught and other spiritual traditions being taught. And so people still 
thinking, just get rid of all ideas, and then have concentration, and then you just, um, you know, you abide in bliss. And you sit there. Yeah. So often people, uh, it's kind of like with ordination, you know, the people who have ordination fever. And so I said, you know, I got ordained, I got ordained. So I asked them, what are you going to do the day after you ordain? Because they've set the ordination as, you know, their goal. Then what do you do? You've met that goal. Then what? What are you going to do? So same thing, people who are new who say, I'm going to develop single point of concentration. I want to have the bliss. Okay, what are you going to do the day after you have that? It's a skill that doesn't belong just to Buddhists. Other other spiritual traditions, you know, uh, teach concentration as well. So you get that, then what are you going to do? Uh, you can concentrate. What are you going to put your mind on? How are you going to use it? it? Okay. So um, here we can see, you know, the first seven chapters that Shanti Deva taught, they're not only um, the prelude to generating single-pointedness, but they're also what you want to focus on after you have, because these are the um, uh, the ideas that the Buddha taught and the qualities that the Buddha emphasized it's important for us to develop. And the more we can concentrate, the better we can develop these these things. But we have to learn something about the Dharma first. Okay, so this is this is really quite important, um, I think, and I really see the importance more as time goes on. Yeah, I think especially what what really did it for me was when I heard I read the story about the rabbi who was doing Zen meditation and came out of a Zen retreat with more conviction in the existence of God. Yeah. Now, if you're doing Buddhist meditation, you're not going to come out with that conviction. (laughs) You know, that's not something the Buddha taught, that the Buddha found helpful, that wants us, that he wants us to realize. Okay? So, um, So what you go into single-pointed meditation with your view of the world is going to influence you know what you come out with yeah and we even have the example of Milarepa who developed single-pointedness before he met his guru Marpa and he used it to kill people yeah so it's, it's not just like, let's develop single-pointedness and then we've got everything. We want to develop the, the qualities that the Buddha is talking about. Yeah, And that's why studying these texts is so important. So we know what the qualities are. We know what the correct view of reality is. So then when we en- uh, meditate, we can reinforce that. Yeah. 
So we don't need to jump around and do, you know, 500,000 different deity practices. Yeah, that's not the point. The point is to generate the qualities in our mind. The deity practices can help us do that. But again, um, the, the Tibetans, or no, who was it that said this? Maybe somebody else remembers that the, the Indians, no, the Tibetans have lots of deities and actualize none, but the, the Indians or the, the real practitioners, uh, have focused on one deity and actualize that one. Okay. So it's not about collecting initiations. It's not about, uh, collecting deity retreats. Yeah. It's easy to, you know, comparatively easy to sit there and visualize a deity and say mantra. Okay. But developing the qualities by training the mind in the steps to develop the qualities, that's, you know, uh, takes a bit more effort. Yeah. Than just saying, Oh, money, pay me home. Yeah. Of course, saying, Oh, money, pay me home helps. And Lama Yeshi once in, in, uh, you know, in support of saying the mantra said, even you don't want to develop compassion. If you say that mantra a lot, it, you'll develop compassion. I don't think he meant it as that was the only cause for developing compassion. Yeah. That's not it. But it's definitely something that helps the mind. And of course, saying mantra keeps our mind busy on saying something that's constructive instead of, you know, this person disappointed me, this person won't talk to me, this person stabbed me behind the back, this person disappointed me, this person stabbed me behind the back, this person, you know, that mantra. So that one, uh, it's easy. You know, we should abandon and instead say, Omani Pemi Hung or Matsanadi. Yeah. But the, the point is really to, to transform the mind. Yeah. So I, I heard in, in EML, you know, people really started thinking about what does it mean to practice the Dharma? And transforming your mind is what it means. Yeah. And that's something that happens within yourself. Nobody else can see that. So you, they can, people can see your external behavior. So if you're transforming your mind well, there will be some good change in your behavior. Yeah. But we can always fake it. You know, we're very good at faking it and pretending to be good practitioners. So just uh, the external behavior isn't really the full criteria, okay? And so that's why it's important that we learn how to evaluate our own actions and what's going on in our own mind. Yeah. Because we're the only one, I mean, besides the Buddhists and Bodhisattvas who who really understand that. Okay. Okay, so we're on chapter eight on meditation. And one of the, the this section that we're going through now, what Shantideva is trying to get across to us is 
if you want to really develop deep samadhi, yeah, there's a lot of criteria that it's important to fulfill beforehand. And one of those that he's going through right now is um, detaching yourself from the hustle-bustle of your regular life. Because as long as you're involved in that, yeah, and especially, you know, in the verses he's saying now, when we're all involved with other people and our relationships and our careers, which depend on relationships and what other people think of us and if they approve of us, and if they like us or if they disapprove, if they're criticizing, as long as our mind is preoccupied with that and physically we're, and verbally we're in the middle of all of that going on, then it's going to be very difficult for us ordinary beings to calm our mind because we are so used to focusing on external objects, yeah? And, and so and when we're attached to all the external objects and ex- external people, then, you know, our attention goes there and the mind gets caught up with everything. Okay, so that's why in the section we're doing now, in one way, it sounds like he's really discrediting ordinary sentient beings and saying, ordinary sentient beings, their minds are full of garbage, don't hang out around them, you know, they're, they're really not good friends, and forget about them. On one hand, it sounds like he's saying that. Yeah, but he, then he just taught us all about having compassion for them. So why is he dissing them now? He's not dissing sentient beings, yeah. What what he's pointing out is how attached we are to them, how attached we are to praise, to good reputation, to being appreciated, to being noticed, yeah, to being accepted, to belonging, you know, how we're so attached to those kinds of things and uh, and how with that kind of attachment it becomes difficult to develop single-pointedness. Now, surely the first seven chapters help us to, to start detaching from those things, yeah? And especially when he starts out the first chapter He's talking about all the good qualities of bodhicitta. So what he's doing, starting out from the beginning, you know, what's he selling us? Bodhicitta, 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 okay? And so he's saying, put your mind on bodhicitta. This is very important if you want to be a Mahayana practitioner and if you want to work for the benefit of sentient beings and attain full awakening. Bodhicitta is the key, it's the differentiating factor in the Mahayana, yeah, that you don't have in the Shravaka vehicle or the solitary realizer vehicle, okay? So, you know, we're trying to learn those qualities and develop them, and then here we're at the point where maybe we can start 
developing some single-pointedness. Now, you'll remember from the Kamala Shila teachings that we fortunately received from Geshe Topke, he went through the different conditions that are necessary to develop um, shamatha or serenity and the different conditions necessary to develop uh, insight or vipassana, yeah? So we have to know what those conditions are and then really see if we have them. That's if we want to actually go through the nine stages of mental development and and attain serenity, yeah. But for us, it's much more realistic, just work at, you know, getting our mind a little bit more stable, uh, having less distraction in our meditation. But with an active life, if you actually read the, you know, the conditions, the preconditions for developing shamatha, um, you know, and then check out if you have them. And, you know, there's many of them, you know, abiding in a quiet place. Yeah. So if you're living in the middle of the city near the highway, yeah, are you living in a quiet place? When you go to your job and, you know, and you have a social life and you're going out with people and you have family obligations, yeah, are you going to have the ability to develop single-pointedness? No. So develop, you know, strengthen your concentration. But, you know, I, I would advise against making that the focus of your practice, especially at the beginning. And when I say beginning, I don't mean the first few weeks of learning the Dharma. Okay. You know, it's more like the first few eons of learning, or at least the first few lifetimes, yeah. So beginning doesn't just mean, you know, today, you know, today I'm a beginner, tomorrow I've, you know, but, but to, to really, uh, uh, you know, work on these things over time without having a lot of fancy expectations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he does sell us on bodhicitta, you know, and that's a good thing to be sold on. You know, used cars, no. Even new cars, no. We don't need to be sold on those things. Okay. Yeah. But having somebody point out the benefits of bodhicitta to us, so in our mind we say, I want that. But it's not an external thing, and we can go like that. It's internal, something that we have to develop ourselves, okay? But developing that kind of appreciation and uh, respect and admiration for bodhicitta, then, you know, that will really um, motivate us to do the practice to develop it. Okay? So... To review a couple of verses uh, where we before we stopped last time, because these verses are very potent, yeah, you know we and we often go to to extremes. Need I say that again? But, <laughs> you know, it's important to say that again because we do. So one extreme is 
oh, I love bodhicitta, so now I'm going to be the busiest of the busy, and I'm going to help everybody, and I'm starting five new projects, and I'm helping everybody do this and do that, and I have my fingers and everything, and I know what's ever going on with everybody, and I'm trying to get them all to practice bodhicitta and become awakening, you know? Uh, so that's one extreme. Yeah. Meanwhile, our own mind is totally scattered. Yeah. The other extreme is, oh, Shanti Deva's pointing out the disadvantages of all of that. So now I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna go build a, a little hut somewhere. Uh, let's see, uh, maybe up the up the mountains. Oh no, I'll go live in the forest. Yeah, because he's talking here about living in the forest and how peaceful it is and being with the animals instead of all these other human beings who are so crazy. So I'm going to go live in the forest. Yeah, right out there on the other side of the excavator. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, most of you know the story if we had one monk here who wanted to live in the forest, and uh, that didn't last so long. <laughs> you know, he was, uh, he had a hammock. He didn't want to sleep in the ground, you know. So he had a hammock, but then he heard all sorts of strange noises, like crickets. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, uh, he got freaked out and uh, came back. And then then he told me he was going to do a fort. We went to a... A monastic gathering, and he told me after that he was going to do a, a forest retreat because the retreat center was where we were at was in the forest. And then I found out after two days, he had changed his mind. I don't know if he had changed it or made it up beforehand, but he had decided to do a city retreat. So he was going with his alms bowl and sitting in front of Safeway. Yeah. And then uh, he sent one picture, you know, I don't know, Safeway or some market, and he's sitting there like this, and all the people are going by. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, forest retreat uh, checkup, okay? <laughs> it sounds so romantic, doesn't it? And even... You know, in Thailand, it's called the forest tradition. But in for over 100 years, the Thai government has been chopping down the forest. So the monks don't wander in the forest in ex- the same way they used to for centuries. Yeah. So, okay. But you, you can wander in our forest. Yeah. Yeah. He also wanted to come here for lunch. Yeah. He he came to, he came to the door with his alms bowl to collect lunch. He he didn't want to be on the lunch rota, but uh, <laughs> yeah, smart guy, huh? Yeah. Except the crickets did him in. <laughs> I don't know if it was the crickets. It might have been. I don't know. Our, our forest is actually pretty quiet. Maybe it was the birds chirping. Yeah. 
Okay. So verse 21, if, if there was someone who despises me, what pleasure can I have in being praised? Okay. So when you get criticized, yeah, or when you get praised, think about this. Or actually, when you get praised and you're in the process of getting a little bit, hmm, I'm so good, then think, if there's somebody who despises me, and there always is somebody, yeah, and where are you going to go where everybody likes you and nobody doesn't like you? Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> Over the rainbow. Yeah, that's good. Go over the rainbow and find that place. Yeah? <laughs> well, where are we going to go where nobody dislikes us? Where everybody thinks that we are just fantastic. So, you know, if we're receiving play, praise... If there's somebody who despises me, what pleasure can I get in being praised? Yeah? Because somebody's praising me and then this guy can't stand me. So, you know, if I'm so sensitive to what other people think, then I'm going to be happy because of what this one's saying and miserable because of that, what that one's saying. And then I'm going to be totally confused. Yeah? And if there's another person who praises me, what displeasure can I have when being despised? So if somebody trashes you, why do you get so upset? Because there's also going to be somebody who praises you. And we all have people who praise us. And we all have people who love us. So when you're sitting there feeling sorry for yourself because nobody loves you, you know, that's baloney. That's total baloney um, because everybody has people who love them. Everybody. Yeah. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we block it. But it's there. Okay. So given that, then why do we get so unhappy when some people don't like us? Yeah. Oh, because if they criticize me, you know, it means I'm bad. It's going to ruin my reputation. If they're going to spread it around like COVID, and then everybody won't like me. And if nobody likes me, oh, then that's, then what's the purpose of my life? Because the purpose of my life is a popularity con contest. I'm still in high school. Huh? Wasn't that your main purpose in high school? To have people like you? To fit in? Yeah, to make sure your hair was done exactly the way it was supposed to be and your, and your clothes looked just like everybody else's and where you were an individual but in a very conforming way. <laughs> yeah, so that everybody likes us. And that... Uh, you know, I thought we were supposed to grow out of that. Oh, we haven't. It's high school forever. Oh, God. Do you want to have your high school mind forever? <laughs> 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 
One person said to me, one of his chief motivations for getting out of samsara is he doesn't want to go through adolescence again. Yeah? You want to go through high school again? Oh, God. Yeah? Adolescence, you know, the craziness. We were all a little bit crazy during adolescence, weren't we? Yeah? I was really good for a while. I was like the ideal child, you know, Susie cream cheese. My parents were so proud of me. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, I, uh, I went away and all hell broke loose. Um, yeah. But, you know, where are we going to go where everybody likes us and thinks we're wonderful. And where are we going to go where everybody hates us? And anyway, how does that really matter? Does it really matter? You know, why do we pay attention to what people whose minds are obscured by afflictions say think about us? Yeah. You know, this is why it's always coming out in the sutras. Pay attention to the wise. You know, what the wise say to abandon, what the wise say to practice. Yeah. But not to other beings who are in samsara because they'll guide you to more samsara. The wise ones will guide us out of samsara. Okay. But that, that's a really good verse, you know. That one actually should, I think, go be among the ones that go on our mirror. Yeah, well, our mirror is getting pretty full, which was actually good because eventually, then when we look in the mirror, we'll just see the Buddha's teachings instead of our own face. That's much better, isn't it? Yeah. Instead of, oh, Look at all my pimples. Oh, all these wrinkles. Oh, everything's sagging. What would I look like if I had a facelift? Oh, I'd look younger, you know? So instead of thinking like that when we look in the mirror, we'd have these verses and maybe we'd think across, you know? What would I look like if I grew my hair out and parted it in the other way? Yeah. Yeah. Or I changed glasses. Yeah. Or I got, you know, where I had the tooth extracted, maybe if I got an implant there. Or what else? Yeah. Better to read the Buddhist things on on the mirror. Okay, verse 22. If even the conqueror, the Buddha, if even the victor was unable to please the various inclinations of different beings, then what need to mention a malicious person such as I? Therefore, I should give up the intention to associate with the worldly. Okay, so the Buddha, you know, had all... Perfect qualities had the compassion, the wisdom, the power, the skill to really, you know, lead sentient beings and benefit them. But he still wasn't able to please everybody. Yeah. 
Some people went and said, you know, this is why it's nice to, if you read the Pali Sutras, you get more of an idea of the Buddha as, as a person. And he'd go places and some people would say, well, like his first five disciples after he attained awakening, he went to teach them. When they saw him coming, they said, oh, there's that guy, that flake. You know, we were all doing ascetic practices, and he quit, and he's such a softy and a flake. And when he comes, we're not going to offer him a seat. We're not going to give him any water, you know, no chocolate for him, and just ignore him. Yeah? So people said that about the Buddha. Yeah. And then later on, other disciples, you know, he would teach something and then somebody would go off and teach the exact opposite, saying this is what the Buddha taught, okay? Or people would, I mean, they, when you read the stories, read the Vinaya, it's quite interesting. The stories behind the formation of each, te- of each precept. And by the way, the different Vinaya uh, traditions, you know, Amula Shravastavada, Dharmagotaka, Pali, and so on. The stories are not identical. But it's interesting, whichever ones you read, if you think people are a bit nutty now, yeah, what some of the Buddha's disciples did, his monastic disciples, were just, I mean, out of this mind, out of this world. And that's why the Buddha had to make precepts. You know, you, you know, like, well, the, the sexual one, you know, okay, you know, he went back and because his parents wanted, he, he wasn't, uh, he was a monk, but his parents wanted a male heir because in the Indian culture, you know, the son or grandson is supposed to do all the funeral rites and so on when the, parents or grandparents die. So the, his parents, you know, he was the only child. They wanted somebody to do all these rites when they died. So they said, please come back, be with your wife, give us an heir. So he thought, oh, for the benefit of my parents, to benefit sentient beings, you know, they really want me to do this. So he went back and he slept with his wife and and the wife had a baby boy and the parents were happy. When the Buddha heard about that, he said, (laughs) you know, are you thinking clearly? Is this proper behavior? Okay, so he made a precept of celibacy. That's understandable. This guy, you know, because we do stupid things motivated by our own personal selfish version of compassion. Okay, we call it compassion, but it's actually a way to alleviate guilt. Okay, so we do that. We can understand. Then you keep reading the stories. And there's one monk, you know, Who's, who's practicing in solitude and, you know, meditating and everything. And, um, and after lunch, some, some monkeys come around and he shares his, his leftover food, you know, in particular with, with one, uh, lady monkey. Okay. I don't know. She was a monkey. I think maybe a gorilla, maybe an orangutan. I don't know, because monkeys are pretty small. 
Anyway. Well, yeah, but what he did to this monkey. Anyway, um, yeah, so what happened is, you know, this is going on for a while. And then somebody sees what's happening is he gives uh, the lady monkey some food and then he has sex with her. And then that gets reported to the Buddha. Okay. So you think the first guy was a little bit off? This guy? What? You're having sex with a monkey? You know, you are really desperate. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then the Buddha says, not even with animals. That's written in the precept. Then some time goes on. Then there's a story of another one of his monks who goes and has sex with a corpse. You thought the monkey was bad enough, but with a corpse? Okay, so it's just giving you some idea of what the Buddha had to deal with. Yeah, he teaches these people, and then they do like that. Yeah, and so this, this is how the, the the different precepts got got made because sometimes, okay, so this is why it's pay attention to the what to, the advice of the wise and don't get involved with the the worldly people because they means well, dear. But they don't have the correct view. And so they want you to be happy in this life. Yeah? And they're not thinking about the karma that you create and how you spend your time and that the time of death is indefinite. They don't think about that. Yeah? Okay. So even if the Buddha was unable to please all these different beings, okay, then um, what need to mention a malicious person like me? So the Buddha was kind and compassionate. Are we kind and compassionate? No malice? No grudge holding? Yeah? No competition that wants to put somebody else down and make ourselves the champ? Okay, so... You know, if people criticize the Buddha, of course they're going to criticize us. Yeah. And so, therefore, yeah, give up the intention to associate with worldly people who, um, you know, will lead us into that, that misbehavior. Um, yeah, that takes us right down the slippery slope. Okay, verse 23. They scorn those who have no material gain and say bad things about those who do. How can they, who by nature are so hard to get along with, ever derive any pleasure from me? Okay, so worldly beings. Yeah, what do they think about poor people? Blech, you know, especially in this country. You know, if you're poor, you know, you better just 
get to it and pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, even you don't have any boots. You know, if you're poor, it means something wrong with you. If you're poor, it means you're criminal. Yeah. I mean, it's really a very, very bad view. Yeah. So they scorn those who have material gain. Yeah, that's what happens in this country. Yeah, and that's why they don't want to. They don't feel that the people who are impoverished in this country deserve any governmental help because people don't want to give their taxes to give somebody to give food to somebody who's a welfare queen or welfare king. Yeah, and just taking advantage of the system. So they think everybody's like that. Of course they aren't. You know, people do their best. And especially situations with single mothers. Yeah, you're expecting them to work full time plus bring up their children. Yeah, with nobody else in the home to help with the rent and help take care of the kids. I mean, how's, come on. Okay, so they scorn those who have no material gain. And they say bad things about those who do. So people who are really rich, everybody likes to criticize. How did you get your wealth? You know, so, so people might ad- ad- admire Donnie's wealth, but he got it from his daddy. He didn't really earn it himself. So they, you know, say things like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you don't have money, they criticize you. If you have money, they criticize you. Okay. So how can these people who are by nature so hard to get along with, you know, if whatever you do, they (laughs) criticize you, you know, if you don't do well in school, they criticize you. They think you're stupid. If you do well in school, they think you cheat and they're, or they're jealous of you. Yeah? It's, it's the same way with, with everything, isn't it? Yeah. So sentient beings are difficult to get along with, yeah, because they compete. They're jealous. They're arrogant. Yeah, they want to be first, but they, you know, how what is it? Somebody said to me, "I, I want to look responsible, but I don't want to be responsible." Okay, so we want to look good, but don't we don't want to really create the causes for it? So we're hard to get. You know, worldly beings are hard to get along with, and whatever you do, they're not going to be satisfied. Yeah, I mean, I really saw this when I wanted to ordain and my parents were so unhappy. And I thought, you know, if I just continued the way I was living and led the life that they want me to live, they still wouldn't be happy. They still wouldn't be. Yeah. So, you know, if this is by what they're like by nature, you know, and it's true, sentient beings are like that. Even our cats, our spoiled cats. I mean, you can't get more pampered than our cats who are weighted on hand and foot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely pampered. Are they ever satisfied? No. 
give me Rupeka, you know, equanimity, Mr. Equanimity is the most unsatisfied. No matter how much food you give him, he says, I'm starved. I want more food now. Yeah, not in five minutes. Yeah, now. Actually, you should have given it to me two hours ago. Yeah, after I ate my last meal, (laughs) you should have given me another one. Okay, so people who are perpetually dissatisfied, how in the world are they ever going to derive any pleasure from us? How are they going to have any satisfaction from us? No matter what we do, yeah, they're, they're not going to be happy. Huh? Think about it. Because I don't think, you know, any of us uh, really grew up to be the kind of, of adult that our parents wanted us to be. Did your parents have the idea when you were a baby that you should grow up to be a Buddhist and be a a Buddhist monastic, you know, shave your hair, put on strange clothes. Yeah, not your dad. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. So, yeah. So we didn't turn out the way they wanted us to. So even we go back and we try and live the kind of life that they want us to. Then what? Yeah, then what? Are they going to be happy? Are we going to be happy? Is anybody going to be happy? I mean, I realized that if I didn't ordain and I kept living the way I was living, I was going to make a mess, not only of my life, but of other people's lives as well. Okay, so so how... You know, how will they ever derive any pleasure from me? So this gets us to to really, you know that mind that thinks that we are needed and we are so important and if we aren't there with the people who care about us, their lives are going to fall apart. Yeah. Then this is is asking us, Are their lives really going to fall apart if we aren't there? Yeah. Is it that if we aren't there, they're going to be always unhappy? Okay. So I'm not saying to to just, you know, say, oh, you know, kind of, uh, you have two broken legs, but you're never going to be happy if I go back and take care of you. I'm not saying that, you know. But to just think, you know, if, if what really is beneficial in the long term? Because the short-term benefit, it's there and it's gone, isn't it? Yeah. Verse 24. It has been said by the Tathagatas that one should not befriend the childish, because unless they get their own way, These children are never happy. Okay? He happens to be talking about us there. Of course, the verse is getting us to think about other people and how childish they are. But he's also talking about us. 
because unless they get their own way, these children are never happy. Okay? So we have all sorts of suggestions about how the Abbey should be run. Don't we? And we aren't happy when we make these suggestions. Yeah? That... There's dirt on the walls, so we should wash the walls every day so there's no dirt on the wall. Yeah, I think that's an incredible, important thing for the Abbey that we should do. Are we ever going to be happy even everybody washes the wall every day? Yeah. When I was doing the, you know, for... I have to walk every morning. So in the winter when I walk up and down downstairs, there's dirt all over that floor. You know, I mean, you people, you go in the in the foyer and you don't you don't do like this with your shoes to take all the dirt off of them. So when you walk around Kuan Yin, you know, you should have clean shoes. What do you do? You track in uh, flakes from the, the wood, you know, and you track in re- remnants of turkey poop and you, t- and you track in little bits of your, of your, your Kleenex or you drop a whole used Kleenex in the middle, you know, and I have to pick it up when I'm walking. And then there's even a mark on the floor that's permanent that I tried to get out and it won't come out. And somebody else did that. You know, it's like, who do you think you are coming into the foyer and bringing all that dirt with you? (sighs) Yeah, everybody should, you know, wipe their feet for 30 seconds. I'm going to put a timer out there and (laughs) you have to wipe your feet for 30 seconds and take off your shoes. Yeah. And then tiptoe in here. I don't want to hear one peep out of you because I'm meditating in the meditation hall. And if you make noise downstairs here, it disturbs my meditation because I have such good hearing. (laughs) So I don't want to hear any noise downstairs. Yeah. Then everybody does exactly what you want. Are you going to be happy, satisfied, pleased? No. You'll find something else to complain about. Why? Because we have the nature of being dissatisfied and complaining. Yeah. I mean, that's my favorite hobby. I complain. And I've told you before, if you ever need somebody to have an opinion, if you ever need somebody to complain, come to me. I can give you opinions like this. I can give you complaints even quicker. Okay. So how are people like me with that kind of mind ever going to be happy? Impossible. So... If I'm somebody, you know, who wants to develop 
you know, meditative concentration. If I'm trying to get, a, if what's important to me is that other people like me and honor me and respect me and appreciate me, how am I ever going to get that? When sentient beings, by their own nature, because they, unless they get their own way, these children are never happy. How are they ever going to be happy with me? Yeah, impossible. So, if that's the case, why do I run around trying to be, you know, either uh, the one who, you know, the people pleaser in chief, or Mr. or Ms. Fix-It, because I'm going to fix all their problems? Yeah, why am I spending my time trying to get people to like me? Now, somebody's going to say, does that mean that we don't care at all about other sentient beings? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't care about sentient beings. Because what did he do the first seven chapters? He said care about sentient beings. What he's saying here, you know, care about sentient beings, but don't expect that they're always going to be happy with you. Don't spend your life trying to make everybody okay with what you do because it's impossible. He's saying prioritize your life. What's important in your life? Yeah. Practicing, you know, ridding yourself of the self-centered thought, calming your greed and attachment, calming your anger and grudge holding, is that what's more important, doing that or running around trying to make everybody else happy when they're never going to be happy with what you do? You know, so why are you attached to that? Give up the attachment. That's his, that's his point. His point is don't care, is not don't care about others. Is give up attachment to approval and reputation and being a people pleaser. We need to do that people pleasing skit again. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay, verse 25. When shall I come to dwell in forests amongst the deer, the birds, and the trees? and the bears, and the cougars, and the elks. And the ravens, who tiptoe around and are so quiet. I can develop samadhi so easily in the forest with the ravens, can't I? They're really a trip, aren't they? I mean, who? So next time you're meditating and you're complaining about somebody else in the hall making noise, just be glad that it's not a raven in the hall. Okay? (laughs) 
When shall I come to dwell in forests, amongst the deer, the birds, and the trees, that say nothing unpleasant? (laughs) And are delightful to associate with. Oh, especially the turkeys. They're so lovely to associate with. Yeah, just wait until the winter time is here. We had 60 turkeys here one winter. Six zero turkeys. You could not walk anywhere. <laughs> you had to tiptoe on every path you were on. <laughs> okay. Who are delightful to associate with. Well, just be, a gla- just be glad they weren't bears, you know, instead of they're just turkeys. And they're so cute, the baby turkeys, yeah. It's when they grow up and their poop is bigger, yeah. Small poop is okay. Big poop, mm-mm. Okay. Okay. When dwelling in caves, in empty shrines, and at the feet of trees... Never look back. Cultivate detachment. Okay. So he's saying never look back at all the hubbub in society. And like right now, I mean, how, you know, with the polarization in the country, you know, everybody is so hyped up about things. And especially since Monday, you know, when the... um, uh, when the FBI, you know, served a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago. Oh, my God. Everybody, oh, especially the Republicans, I mean, just going totally crazy. And then all the other people saying, but, you know, Michael Cohen was great. Remember Michael Cohen? He was he was Trump's. You don't remember Michael Cohen? He was a nice Jewish boy. Um, <laughs> Um, um, so he was Trump's lawyer, and then he, you know, Trump criticized him, and he turned on Trump, and he, you know, confessed. But he also, he was the one who was paying off, was it Stormy Daniels or the other woman that he slept with? Or both? Both. He was, he was the one writing the checks, paying off the different women that that Trump had affairs with, okay? And he was supposed to get embursed, yeah, by by the Trump organization or by Trump personally. Anyway, he got busted for being the one writing the checks, yeah, because it was a mis... I don't know what the charge was, whether it was misusing campaign funds or... Or, yeah, misuse of funds in some way. Anyway, he got served with a warrant and uh, a search warrant, and they came in and, you know, they took his electronics and everything. And then he was indicted and he was convicted and he was given a three-year term. He spent part in prison and he spent part at, at home in, in, what do they call it when you're restrained at home? Home, home. Yeah, anyway, he couldn't leave his house. Um, so, so uh, you know, he was, he was even commenting that all this craziness, you know, because Trump, Trump said, 
um, you know, the the feds raided his house. They are occupying his house and, um, you know, and, and just going through his stuff without any concern for anything. And he's afraid they're planting evidence there. So Michael Cohen said, you know, no, that's not what happens when they serve a warrant. They come in, they give you the warrant, you read it, you open the door, you know, they look at everything they need to look at, and they leave, and they're not raiding your house, and they're not snooping around into everything. And he said, I should know. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, it's just the, the news these days is totally nuts about this. Yeah. And of course, Trump is using it, you know, because his whole thing is unpersecuted. Yeah. I, I, I you know, be, everybody's against me, you know. I, I mean, the, it's the Democrats' fault. Yeah. They're using their, the, the Democrats are politicizing the Justice Department as if he didn't, um, you know, to, to, uh, to get rid of him, you know, and they failed. Uh, they tried to impeach him twice. They couldn't do that. They, the Mueller report, they tried to get him for that. They couldn't do it. So now, you know, they're, repon they're weaponizing the Justice Department to try and prevent him from being president again. So he's the one actually politicizing the whole thing. But so everybody's up in arms and, um, you know, um, anyway, yeah, what's his name? Uh, Kevin McCarthy said, wait until, you know, if we take back the House, you know, we're going to open a, a search about um, Merrick Garland, you know, the attorney general, because what he's doing is illegal and we're going to, you know, we're going to get him. So you just beware. It's, you know, it's craziness. So what, what I'm not talking politics, I'm talking um, here, you know, when, when he's saying that the, you know, when I, when can I live in forest and at least with the animals? Okay. They may poop. They may make some noise. Okay. But they're more delightful to associate with than all this, you know, craziness that you are exposed to nowadays in the news. Um, yeah. Okay. So when, in this verse, so he says, never look back, cultivate detachment. Yeah, don't get involved in all this stuff. Yeah, so don't let the news rattle you. Yeah, be aware of what's happening. Yeah, know, you know, what you... What is important to pay attention to? What isn't? What preparations you need to make for various things? But don't let your mind get all bonkers where, uh, you know, your whole life is like, you know, I gotta, I gotta get more information. You know, what did they really do? What were they looking for? How many boxes did they take out of his house? You know, just relax. Yeah. 
Okay. Never look back. Cultivate detachment. Verse 27. When shall I come to dwell in places not clung to as mine? which are by nature wide and open, and where I may behave as I wish without attachment. Okay, let's focus on the couplets first. When shall I come to dwell in places not clung to as mine? Okay, where, where I dwell, I don't have my room, my bed, my mattress, my blanket, my pillow, my robes, yeah, my books, my computer, my tablet, my phone, oh my God, yeah, my glasses, my hearing aids. When am I going to, you know, dwell in a place where uh, I don't cling to everything as mine. Now, is it the place that makes you cling to it as mine? Where is that clinging coming from? Yeah, here. Okay. So I try and make a habit when I refer to where I live, Instead of saying my cabin, I say Prajna cabin. It's not my cabin. It belongs to the Abbey. Yeah. My room is not my room. It's the Abbey's building. Yeah. And I'm allowed to live there. Okay. My computer is actually belongs to the abbey. Yeah. So as monastics, uh, we're allowed to own 13 items. Okay? So your three robes, nuns have five. Yeah. A needle and thread. Yeah, to sew your, your robes with. A trainer, a strainer, to make sure that you don't drink water with bugs in it. And, uh, you know, very, a, bath, a bathing cl- cloth. Yeah. So a lot of these things are not things that we need nowadays. Yeah. Um, but that, those are the things that we are, according to Vinaya, allowed to actually say they're mine. Even a change of clothes. Remember, they're not mine. We have to have shared ownership with somebody else with them, for them, okay? So it's really a good practice to look around and and take the mind out of everything. Yeah, because as soon as we label something mine, boy, it really changes. Yeah, like this body, yeah, my body. Oh, don't you do anything I don't want. I don't want to suffer even a pinprick. Yeah, don't you harm my body. Uh, Or do something to my clothes, or my friends, or my relatives, or, yeah, 
whatever thing you have that you just cherish, you know, that, you know, how, how whacked out we get over what we call mine. Yeah. And especially people, especially people when we call a person mine, boy, that adds a whole other layer of attachment, expectations, yeah, and so on. Rules of the universe. Okay, and then the second two lines. Uh, okay, places which are by nature wide and open. We live in such a place. We're quite fortunate. And where I may behave as I wish without attachment. Okay, we like to cut out the last two words. And where I may behave as I wish. Yeah? Without attachment. So this doesn't mean live in a place where I can do whatever I want at any time I want to whoever or whatever I want. It doesn't mean that that is freedom. I mean, when that mind is not free, is it? That mind's completely under the control of craving and clinging. It's not free. Okay. So we may behave as we wish and do what we want, and we're prisoners. Yeah, we're prisoners of our own mind. When shall I come to live without fear, having just an alms bowl and a few odd things, like a computer and a smartphone and a tablet? and a television, and a washing machine, and a dishwasher, and a generator, yeah. Wearing clothes not wanted by anyone, because they've worn them once and given them to goodwill after that. And not even having to hide this body, except if I don't wear clothes, then all the the uh, the ticks and the thorns and the burrs and everything. Okay. So, but it's what he's getting at here. You know, is when shall I come to live without fear and to look at our lives and how much fear and anxiety we have now? Yeah. Will I have enough food? Will I have a place to live? Will I have clothes? You know, will the, uh, you know, all the right-wing people come up here? Yeah. Well, if they do, then we'll do what Master Hua did. We'll invite them to come and sit down and have some tea. He gave them hot uh, cold drinks, because it was a hot day when they came to protest outside his monastery. Yeah, so, but to, you know, to have a mind that doesn't worry so much about everything, that's not trying to plan everything, 
you know, those lines in the uh, parting from the four uh, clingings are very potent, aren't they? About how we plan for so much in our lives. And then even at the time of death, we're still planning. Yeah. So this, he doesn't mean don't make plans. He, he's saying don't be obsessed with trying to plug all the holes in the dike. Yeah. Because, you know, you're always in free flow. So just relax. Do what you need to do. But don't worry so much about everything. Because what we worry about is often a big waste of time. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Okay. So when shall I come to live without fear? The more attachment we have, the more fear we have. The more attachment we have, especially to predictability, the more anxious we are. Having just an alms bowl and a few odd things. Yeah, so having our bowl and what we need to stay alive. Wearing clothes not wanted by anyone. At the time of the Buddha, all the clothes were made. It it was very difficult to get material then. It's not like now where India has gorgeous material and there's plenty of shops. It was very difficult to get material for clothes then. So the Sangha picked up bits of, uh, you know, torn off cloth, cloth, that was lying by the wayside, or they went to the cemeteries and took the the shrouds off of the corpses and used that. So they didn't have new clothes, and they didn't have stuff that was made especially for them. And they that's why the robes have so many patches in them. Yeah, but our patches are all the same color because we got a whole piece of cloth and then tore it up to make it look like patches. They just had different pieces of cloth, some thick, some thin. It all got stitched together, and that was good enough. Okay? Wearing clothes not wanted by anyone, and not even having to hide this body. So not being so, like, um, fretting, fretting and worrying about this body. Okay, so from let's stop here. There might be a few questions, and then next verse he's gonna. That verse was a lead-in into attachment to the body, so he's gonna talk a bit about that now. Okay, let's dedicate then. <laughs> 